Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. Cody, I feel like we're rocking and rolling right through the NBA season. We have hit the one quarter poll unofficially where teams have played about 20 or 21 games as of recording this. And I'm feeling good because I feel like I have no idea what's going on in the NBA. Well, it's the quarter mark, so now we have to do our top 10 MVPs. I think it's like contractually obligated for anyone that is a podcast, so that, that's probably what we should do today. We would never we would never come up with such a ridiculous, cheap gimmick and sell the people short. <laughs> we are doing our top 24 MVPs today. There is no other way around it. The 24 most valuable players in the first 21 games of the season. Uh, now we're, we're not, we're not going to do that. I don't know what. What are we going to talk about today? That'd What's going on? What has happened lately that's interesting in the National Basketball Association? Well, I think what's really interesting is, you know, we were kind of talking about the the Timberwolves for the last week or so, and you had your video come out. Mm. We're like, oh, we'll kind of talk about those. We'll extend on that. Mm. And then what? In the last, like, what was it, two days ago? We get the report that Carl Anthony Towns is out for four to six weeks. Is that mm. what I read? Four to six weeks? It's uh, it's one of those calf strains. Got some, got some tearing in the muscle, and, mm. you know, that could sideline you for a month or two. Yeah, I, my understanding of that. We need Dave Dufour on today to give us the calf, the full calf report. Uh, I think if Dave ever had like a TV spot on a big network, it would just be called the calf report with D- Dave Dufour. So yeah, here, here's the thing about that. You have, you have ostensibly one of your best players, maybe your best player. You have an all-star. You have a guy who I think undisputed uh, is just a phenomenal offensive big man. Really incredible offensive big man, the way he can shoot for his size. Of course, he won the the three-point shootout before, and he's a pretty good passer. He's got a little bit of a post game. He's he's got a lot of offensive skills. The defensive side of the ball is where he's always sort of had had something that that could improve or um, leave something to be desired. Let's let's put it that way. And so the interesting thing to me is you've got this experimental kind of concept with him and Gobert. Now you take him out of the rotation. What does the team look like? What do the lineups look like? Um, my hunch after going deep on their defense and after kind of keeping track of this very interesting experiment to start the season, my hunch is that the defense gets better. But what does that mean for the overall team? I, I, I don't know. What do you think? Man, it's going to be so interesting because I want to see how much of an impact it's going to have on them offensively. Because my whole thing, every time I would watch them, this is going to be like the cornerstone of what I was going to talk about today is I'm like, I want the Timberwolves to be running more of their offense through Carl Anthony Towns, right? Because I felt like they relied a lot on like, you know, a lot of pick and roll actions with led by uh, Anthony Edwards, led by D'Angelo Russell. And a lot of those were with Rudy Gobert, while Carl Anthony Towns was like in the weak corner. Right. He was just kind of relegated there. It was like we talked about with Trey Young, where it's like this guy is way too talented to just be a floor spacer. Right. And so, you know, if that's the case, actually, and he's out, maybe there's this weird thing where their offense isn't hurt quite as much just because he wasn't like the the focal point compared to how much they were letting Edwards and Russell do their whole pick and roll thing. Um, Don't get me wrong. I think their offense is still going to tank pretty significantly, but I don't think it's quite as bad as it would be if they were. Honestly, bad if they are running the offense kind of like how I would want them to be running it with Towns. It's kind of a kind of a weird statistical quirk to start the season. Is Carl Anthony Towns has played seven hundred and nine minutes, and in those minutes, the Wolves are being outscored by about a point, a point and a half per one hundred possessions. Um, and then when he goes to the bench for you know a couple hundred minutes. They've had almost the exact same performance being outscored by about a point and a half per 100 possessions. If you look at just Gobert lineups with Towns off the floor, they're actually getting outscored by about seven points per 100. So, you know, like I said, I don't necessarily expect some kind of Ewing theory, uh, Minnesota suddenly takes off, but I also don't think, you know, Per the nature of this experiment to the spirit of the video we just did, 
I don't think the wheels are going to fall off either because I think you get some trade-offs where now maybe the defense can can tighten up a little bit around Gobert specifically. Maybe Nas Reed gets more minutes, and I think Nas Reed is one of their better defenders and certainly gives them a lot more mobility off the bench as a kind of 4-5 hybrid big. So it's just going to be interesting to see what happens going forward. So yeah, like you said, any lineup with when Gobert is on the court without Towns, they're bad. Like, they're just flat out bad. But something that's really interesting, Ben, is if you have both Gobert and Cat off the court and you have Nas Reedin as the only big of those three, it's only 82 minutes, but they're like plus 16 and a half, right? So I'm really excited about the Nas Reed experience because every time I watch the Timberwolves, like, he is, he's probably my greatest joy of watching them. Like, both defensively, like, you talk about the fact that they could probably shore up defensively. Not only are you losing the negative or however much of a negative Cat is, you get however much of a positive Nas Reed is. And I think that he and Gobert can kind of coexist. I think it can be a little bit clunky once in a while just because, you know, Reed is a little bit more mobile, but he's not, like, super mobile. But I am really interested to see, not that I think they're going to keep being, like, plus 16 when Gobert's off and he's on, but this is a very good and interesting bench player that can come up and come in and give him quite a few different looks. So I'm, I really want people to look out for the Nas Reed experience going forward. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to get stuck on Minnesota too long. Um, cause we, we have, we have other fish to fry today, Cody, but it's, it's making the reactions to this video have been very interesting because Minnesota, I I know you don't love watching them from like an aesthetic standpoint. They're not necessarily a team that jumps off the screen as the sexiest team or playing the, the most um, enjoyable style to a lot of people or things like that. But they're fascinating to me. They've been fascinating all season since this trade has been made and since the lineups came together. And just seeing, we talked about it in the preseason, and just seeing them in the preseason and trying to figure out like how the pieces are going to fit together and the fact that defensive fit is a thing now. I mean, in the video, I kind of wanted to do like a five-minute aside on defensive fit and what it means to like scale your defensive talents up once you have a certain responsibility covered defensively and how we've seen in the postseason, you know, if you're rigid defensively, whether you're a drop big or you, you constantly have to hedge and come out in the pick and roll, how it can create problems. So there's a whole reservoir of like really interesting, fascinating things. But the, the negative thing that I don't want to get stuck on, because we're in a positive mood here today, I think Anthony Edwards just had to be better this season for the thing to kind of work, for the, for the idea of it to work. So if you're Minnesota, you ship away all these draft picks, you, you let go of all these players, most of them I can stomach, but man, do I miss Jared Vanderbilt out there running around. Uh, so anyway, you do that, and obviously you're not doing that to win 40 games. And that's kind of, they've, they've really been and played at a 500 pace. And I think even just to get to 50 games, which in today's NBA, you would feel pretty good about the trade, at least throughout the regular season. They just needed Anthony Edwards to be better. And in the video, you can see a lot of his defensive shortcomings. But you mentioned Carl Anthony Towns and offense and how they're going to run the offense. I just think watching them almost night in and night out, they, they just need Edwards to take some kind of offensive leap. And he hasn't done that. And so it's like, where do you get a lot of offensive juice from this team? The way it's kind of constructed. And as I mentioned in the video, maybe D'Angelo Russell can get back on a heater because he's been in a shooting slump. So maybe there's some stuff that can come together. But the other side of this equation is if the offense were playing better and you had more offensive talent out there, you could kind of survive without it feeling like it's really rocky you know like 48 50 win pace with a pretty good offense is feels a lot different than kind of struggling every night just to get wins I want to stick on Anthony Edwards for a second because I I think I my claim during the offseason when we were talking about the Gobert trade you know I I was pretty high on it right like I was really excited about this trade and I think one of one of my premises for that was that look the Timberwolves could have three top 20 players, best case scenario, top three top 15 players in the league on the same team. And at this point, that's very clearly not the case. But when we're talking about this actualized Anthony Edwards, what it actually looks like for Edwards to jump up to the top 20, what kind of a, what kind of a jump did you most want to see from him this season? That's just like, I don't know, maybe there's something that he was working on last year that hasn't quite developed this year. What is it that you were expecting or wanting from him? 
Uh, just on offense? Yeah, just on offense. Well, I think it's it's his shot selection has really sort of been been a roller coaster relative to how good he is as a shooter. So it could be all kinds of things when when you have that kind of str- uh, hard athleticism package that he has. You can become a better pull-up three-point shooter. You can just improve as a shooter in general. So now you can play catch-and-shoot, off-ball stuff. You can you can kind of use your athleticism to cut off of other players who create advantages. And then the other really big one that you look for from young players who are kind of getting more primacy as part of the offense is you look for the playmaking and the decision-making tree to really improve. And I he hasn't been a, you know, it's not like he's really poor in that area in my assessment but I don't think there's really been a material leap this season and as I said earlier like that's not damning that's something that can come with time it could come later in this season it can come next season but I just think when you look at Minnesota they needed that kind of improvement from a key player to really make the thing hum and they haven't and so it kind of makes it feel even uh, you know less less exciting uh, after the big trade to the uh, playmaking point too at first, like earlier on in the season, I thought maybe I was onto something. I saw him throw a couple of nice uh, skip passes off the bounce. And, you know, I'm like, oh, this looks nice. This is a nice thing that Edwards has added. But it's not something that I've seen consistently enough. And just like time and time again, it doesn't feel like he has great offensive feel, right? Like you can kind of see the wheels turning. And there's this great play, I think. I think it was against the Wizards. I think it was against the Wizards recently where he drives into the paint and he kind of he, he jump stops and he pivots and he turns. And then he just stares at his teammate in the corner, just stares at him before making a chest pass. And then it's picked off, right? And like, while I'm watching it in person, I'm like, well, Edwards is passing to the strong corner there. Like, there's nothing else he's going to do. You can see him like doing, uh, like staring him down. And the Wizards obviously picked it off. So I feel like that's just like an encapsulation. Obviously, it's not to that degree all the time. But I feel like that's a bit of an encapsulation of how his, his playmaking prowess is at the moment. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So here's the million dollar question. And it's not even really about Anthony Edwards, but we're we're talking about him and so it's fluttered into my mind. Is this environment is an is an environment where you come up on a team that is not really good typically, hasn't made the playoffs in a long time, um, you know, loses a lot basically, but gives you a lot of reps as a rookie as a young player, Jalen Green in Houston, Zach Levine a couple years ago with the Bulls, where they they would give him point guard reps, things like that. Shea Gilgis-Alexander, some of these seasons with the Thunder. Is this kind of environment a good environment or an ideal environment for a lot of players who need to improve in these particular skills? Or you go to the flip side where it's like, if you come in and you're on a good team right away learning to provide value on the good team even as a even as a sort of let's say MVP level player once you actualize so I'm thinking about um, Kawhi Leonard I'm thinking about uh, Tim Duncan I'm thinking just basically every spur every San Antonio spur Manu Ginobili but but there are other players that fit this right like Jason Tatum with the Celtics ended up being the Celtics' leading scorer in the playoffs as a rookie. And they were, that was game seven of the Eastern Conference Finals they lost against the Cavs, right? 2018. This is pretty close to a finals team. And and Jalen Brown is there. Uh, so so you see what I'm getting at? Like there's, there's two totally kind of different environments that you can put these future, quote unquote, future all-star level prospects in. Is it always healthy for them to be in an environment where the team and the offense is really not good? So I actually want to stick with Edwards on this one, because I think you can even like take these two sides that you just set up 
and split them apart even more. Because if you think about Edwards with the Timberwolves developing, like last year, their defense was pretty solid, right? It was pretty frenetic. They had guys like Jared Vanderbilt, like you said. Jaden McDaniels, obviously, is still there. Cat um, was there, and obviously Gobert wasn't there. But they had like this, this communicative, along with D'Angelo Russell, type of defense. And I think that was good for Edwards. You kind of saw flashes of it. But now this year, when you kind of don't have that same frenetic pace on defense, you see him go back a little bit. You see him regress a little bit. Offensively, also on the Timberwolves, he had Carl Anthony Towns. So as a guy that's like a first-step guy, an explosive sort of athlete getting to the rim, having a center that's one of the best spacing centers ever is probably good for his development, right? But now this year again... He has Gobert to contend with on the team. He has to adjust and figure out what to do. So I think that's even interesting in this conversation is like, sure, there are bad situations, but maybe like the specific context for working on these skills are good for you. And I know this isn't necessarily answering your question, but I do think there's even like, like I said, like gradations within both sides of these where maybe Edwards was able to develop and maybe he's been, he's been stagnating again because the context has changed in a way that's not good for him. How many years has Anthony Edwards been in the NBA? You have to think about it, right? You had to think about it. Yeah. I had had to think about it. I just realized that this is only his third year. Okay. I was going to say three or four. Yeah. Yeah. He he came in. I think it's because of the pandemic and the bubble and the lockdown and all that. Because his first season was the post-bubble season, 2021. And then last year, when they made the playoffs... That was actually his second season and getting, you know, some kind of improvement there. So they go from 23 wins his rookie season to 46 wins last year. And, and you know, coaching changes as well. Uh, Ryan Saunders left about halfway through his rookie season. So I tend I tend to think, and I actually want to talk about this if you're up for it. I, I want yeah. to explore the studio space some more on this because I think that some players probably do well in one environment and a lot of players probably do well in another environment, but it doesn't seem that this idea, I guess that I'm pushing back against is that if you put players on up and coming teams, Kate, uh, Cade Cunningham in Detroit, Jalen green, I already mentioned in Houston, these kinds of players that are top picks, they come in on these really, really weak NBA rosters and then you just give the ball to them and say, you know, go go do whatever you want, right? Um, I don't think that works for everyone as a development path. And I think you could even you could even talk about a guy who's already an all star, and we've mentioned him this year as a just a great offensive player, and Trey Young. And I think to some degree, having those reps in Atlanta was perfect for Trey Young. But from another perspective. Did it limit growth in other areas if he were forced to play and fit on a good team? And by good team, I mean like Magic Johnson joining the Lakers as a rookie. And right away, they already have a point guard and they already have the MVP at center. So you got to figure out how to fit in. And yes, we know historically that after four or five seasons, just giving the keys to Magic and letting him drive that Ferrari and, and run Showtime and all that is the is the sort of optimal path. But I don't think that the skills he had and the reps that he got as a rookie, I don't think they went away. I think they helped him blend with all that talent as James Worthy developed for the Lakers and things like that. Jump forward a couple decades, I would say the same thing about Tim Duncan or Manu Ginobili is a guy that comes to mind because Ginobili was older as a rookie and he came over and right away he's like coming off the bench. But you go, I I recently rewatched a lot of those 2003 Spurs playoff games and he's one of their best players in a ton of games. Like sometimes he's their best player. Sometimes he's their second best player. What, what is the sort of, what are the trade-offs? I guess what I I feel like, I feel like a lot of people think you want to, you want to kind of give Cade Cunningham the ball and get out of the way. So to give to give like evidence to something you're saying, there's this uh, there's this paper back in the '80s by this uh, sociologist, I think by the name of Chambliss. I think it's how you pronounce it. Sociology paper. A sociology paper. Yeah, it's it's titled "The Mundanity of Excellence." And it's this ethnographic study oh where this person is like uh, studying Olympic level swimmers. And the whole point of the study, the whole point of the study is to try and figure out what is it that makes an Olympic level swimmer an Olympic level swimmer. It's not just like this 10,000 hours 
uh, sort of theory. The idea is that it's not just practice that makes perfect, Ben. It's that perfect practice oh, makes yeah. perfect. Yeah. It's getting in the reps that actually matter, but then also doing those all the time. So that seems like it's a slam dunk, all right, getting the, tr- the, the metaphorical transition back to basketball here, that the swimming study is a slam dunk for the fact that a player should be on a good team. But I do think there's an interesting trade-off there. Like, let's say you're a young player that's not Magic Johnson level. You're not good enough. You're not Manu Ginobili level, right? You're only good enough to say, I don't know, you get 10 to 15 minutes a game on a championship level team is that enough sorts of reps to really let you like you said earlier explore the studio space and see what you're able to do or are you like in such a defined role that those sorts of reps are the only ones that you're going to be comfortable doing right so whereas somebody that's on a bad team that's able to kind of do whatever they want maybe they're not getting perfect reps but they're able to kind of like like a child in the sandbox who's developing all these kinds of skills these social things trying to figure out like how things manipulate you're still getting a lot of skills it's just not perfect practice versus somebody that's getting perfect practice but to a much lesser degree so ultimately i think those are really the the trade-offs between the two sides yeah but another another part of of practice and development is diversity of practice. So you could get you could get perfect practice at one particular skill versus just practicing. So um, as an example, free throw shooting. If you shot free throws every day and you did your 10,000 hours of free throws and then you just came in and you slapped your hand. I won't slap my desk like last time because it did make a ridiculous sound with the mic, but you like slammed your hand on the table and you said, look, I've done my 10,000 hour, 10, hours of free throw shooting. I'm an expert. And then we go out and you see you shoot like 62% from the line. That would be practice, but it's not necessarily grooving the right patterns, which is what we mean by perfect practice. And so we watch you shoot free throws and we say, oh, you're shooting them two-handed and your elbow is hitting you in the ear as you shoot. And so you just went out and practiced, but you didn't have this kind of like proper intentional technique that actually gets you what you want. So it's practice, there's perfect practice, but then there's diversity of practice and experience. And this would be moving beyond just shooting free throws. This would be taking shots from other places, taking shots under different conditions, coming off screens, um, turning your body uh, on the move, floaters, whatever it may be. So I, I I think it's more than just like getting a particular type of rep and doing it well. Can I... Can I throw a stat at you? Yes, please. Okay. Kawhi Leonard's rookie season in San Antonio, 2012. He played 24 minutes a game. His offensive load that season was 19. Oh, my God. That is in the seventh percentile historically. The next season, it was 21. The next season, it was 25. And then he finally goes above sort of the median offensive load historically in 2015 up to 32 it it peaks as of now when he plays for the clippers in 2020 at 52 so we go 19 21 25 32 36 44 52 that's the growth so when you said earlier like a player who is limited and you know just gets a couple reps and he's a 15 or 20 minute a guy off the bench i mean isn't that pretty close to that profile you draft this defender he's 3 and d he doesn't have much of a handle he can't pass and yet the spurs every one of those years are like 60 win championship level teams that's like literally the the 1 percentile outcome in that situation like that is the same exact philosophy that led all of these gms to be like oh look at this defensive player that can't shoot or pass or dribble let's draft him because he'll just be the next Kawhi leonard and then they end up in the g league like i just feel like that that's not the kind of thing that you you see a lot and then like you talk about the diversity of of development is actually something that's helpful nothing is better than facing a diversity of different skills than playing basketball and if you're known as the best player on a bad team you are going to be facing a swath of defenses, a large range of defensive players and coverages and things like that. And you're going to have to go up on the fly and develop these sorts of things. And it's not like they're like unsupervised, like the children in the playground aren't like on their own. Like there's a coaching staff there. They have a video department. So even like, you know, Jalen Green, Cade Cunningham, they can go in the back room afterwards and be like, all right, let's break down what it is that I was doing. Right. So I still think that there's extreme value in those sorts of situations, whereas Kawhi Leonard is honestly like a, a one of one. 
Yeah, yeah, but I think that's part of what I'm saying. I'm saying that we can't expect all these players to always turn into superstars. And that feels like what the what the pathway is like like the bottom 7 teams. If you're a top 7 pick, that's their guy. They get you. The team is very, isn't very good and they're like, "You know what we got to do? We got to run everything Paolo Bancaro. We got to run we got to make him the point guard of the Orlando Magic. Before we had Paolo, Franz Wagner, he's the point guard. And as as listeners know, I love this experiment. I love kind of watching them and their big lineups. And both of those players do have some of those skills. So it's not like they're plucking someone who can't dribble out of the out of the rotation and saying, "Try to be a point guard." But it's really leaning into this sort of, you know, on ball, this is how we're going to play. Take a ton of shots. You know, we've talked about this before. Paolo's shot selection can get a little uh a little wild sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so there's a balance between experimentation there and, and, you know, doing something that creates a bad habit. We've talked about that before, but I just feel like a lot of the times on these development tracks, when you look at, when you, when you romanticize that one situation and you say, Oh, this is perfect for Trey young. They're good. Right out of the gate. We'll just build the offense around him. When you romanticize that to me, you kind of, leave out the trade-offs, bad habits aside, let's assume that it goes back to your perfect practice. Let's say you're perfectly practicing those pick and roll reps. Does that limit you down the road when it comes to playing on really, really high level teams? I think that's an interesting question. And I think my only retort to that is like, I think it might even be up to an individual player, right? Like, I don't think we can sit here and come up with some kind of an answer that's like, this is either better than this, because it's like, it's like work styles, right? Like, sometimes grad school works for people. Sometimes it's okay to go out there and be like, hey, you have to pick a topic, and you're going to be in charge of going out and reading all this research and developing a research question, and then you're going to get the answer. Whereas some people are like, look, I want to show up to work with, like, a task list. Like, I need to get these things done before the end of the day, and they're so much better at that, right? And so maybe that's just building on skills that people already have. But I, again, I think this is like the unexplored area of basketball analysis and basketball scouting is like what sort of situation is actually going to be best for the individual player, right? I don't think there's just like this broad panacea of like, this is exactly what's going to work for all of these kinds of players in this situation. Like, you know, Trey Young, like we're talking about, maybe he just plays the same way no matter what situation he would have been in. And I don't know. that That's where I'm at right now is maybe it might be even more individualistic than we're talking. I agree with you. I agree with you. I think it's I think it's different players in different contexts. But I do think there are some players that are amplified or benefit from playing in more winning contexts. Yes. And, and and I kept mentioning Trey Young, but I was actually not actually really focusing on him in my mind. I was I was more focusing on the fact that everyone can't be Trey Young that everyone can't just come in and be LeBron James and Luka Doncic and James Harden. And that if if you sort of romanticize one style, even Jokic, right? Like Jokic is seven feet tall. His his passing and his ball skills, he, he can play point guard. They're, they're incredible. And it's great. I think it's objectively great, both from an entertainment standpoint and from an efficacy standpoint, for big men to have these skills as they develop now. And we're seeing that it goes back to Mike, Mike Prada's term spaced out native, right? We're seeing these guys come in and have these skills. And maybe that's why the league is getting a little younger. So I think that's great. But that is a different thing than saying all of you guys will always play this role of being Jokic versus like, do you know how to be Boris Gio? Do you know how to play that role? Well, um, we talked about the Celtics. The Celtics developed Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown in a winning environment. I think that actually helped. Jalen Brown is an interesting one because I think that helped him a ton. I think that helped him kind of develop sort of off-ball skills, skills as a shooter, as a cutter. And the criticism of him is still like, oh, well, he can't handle that well or he's not a high-level playmaker or passer. It's like, did you did you guys see him at Cal? Did you see him at Cal? He's like jumping out of the gym, but he can barely dribble. I, I think he's actually come quite a long way 
both as a ball handler and overall skill development, and especially as an offensive player. His rookie season, by the end of the season in the playoffs, he had some great reps, I think, guarding LeBron James and other players in the playoffs in spot minutes. But I think his offensive development is tremendous. And Cody, I don't know if we want to keep talking about this or segue to something else, but have you noticed the Boston Celtics have a 122 offensive rating right now with with Jalen Brown being one of their best offensive players. See, you focus on Jalen Brown. I want to go back and finish this here because this is, I think, this is a really fascinating you're, conversation. You're going to go back to Grant Williams? No. <laughs> <laughs> the, the player I think about in this situation is like Mikhail Bridges with the Suns. Ooh, his, yeah, yeah. His, his first season, he joins them. You know, he's drafted 10th, I'm pretty sure. Uh, they're like a, I don't even think they hit 20 wins his rookie season. It's a bad Phoenix Suns team, right? Really young, pre-Chris Paul. Next year, they jump up, and I think they're in like the 30 wins column. Then all of a sudden, the year after that, they're 50 wins. And now you can watch Mikhail Bridges, and I feel like it's an ongoing joke in my head with myself that people are always really excited about Mikhail Bridges' on-ball creation. Just really excited. Like, look at this. Look at this play. But, like, he's got Chris Paul and Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton on his team. Like, Mikhail Bridges is never going to be a high creation guy in that context. And is that a problem? Like he is so he's like maximized his role to such a degree that he's like invaluable to them. But if he had landed on a worse team that he was just like, hey, we're going to let you run a bunch of stuff and develop that way. I don't think we get the Mikhail Bridges that we have now. So I think he's actually a great example that I guess more or less goes against, not goes against, but proves what I was saying earlier in that it wouldn't have been right for Mikhail Bridges to get those kinds of reps. And he should have been getting these reps that might be more boxed in for other certain players. Have, have you read uh, Mikhail Bridges' nicknames on Basketball Reference? Have you seen these? No, I haven't. Someone needs to do something about these these basketball reference Nick. I don't know who populates them. Where do they get them from? Not not us apparently, because I'm trying to pull it up right now. Can you can you just read a couple to me? Uh, I okay okay. The first one that first one is the warden. I assume that's because he puts people in jail <laughs> a lot. Um, but this is the second one that got me. The second one is oh noodles. My God. Noodles, Bri- noodles, bridges, <laughs> and and I'm assuming that's a reference to like the wavy arms noodle man on the corner because he he has long arms. Is that we've lost Cody? We've completely lost Cody. I wish everyone could see this. He can't. He can't. He cannot keep it together. I think we somebody needs to do a post game presser. <laughs> I have a question for noodles. What what would he does he know this exists? Is he aware? String bean. String bean bridges. That sounds like a nineteen thirties character. Oh, string bean bridges. You should have seen him back in the day. Uh Br- brittle. Br- brittle. His one of his nicknames is Brittle. Is I think he, Umbridge with that. He's an Iron Man. This dude doesn't miss time. He shouldn't yeah, be called Brittle at all. That must be ironic, right? It has to be. This is anyway, this is someone needs to do an investigation on this because these modern players seem to be able to have like 15 nicknames that no one's ever heard of that populate basketball reference. And then you'll look at some like all time. You look at like Jerry West and it'll have like nothing or maybe the logo. And you're like, wait, you're you're like, that's it. Anyway, um, where, where were we? What were we talking about? Does anyone care about nicknames anymore? Like, what is the actual best nickname in the league that people believe in? Right now? Yeah. Don't you think it has to be the Time Lord? Oh, wow. But, like... No, no it's not no, like the old days. There aren't no great offense, nicknames. No offense to Rob Williams. Like, I love him. He changed their defense. They made it to the finals. But, like, Rob Williams being the highest caliber player of a nickname that's super popular feels feels like we lost something, Ben. There are probably a couple other decent nicknames in the league that that we're just not thinking of you know it's joker but that's that's mid but they they he, the problem is we've lost the nickname and we've replaced it with the first initial of your name mm. right iced tray is okay you know that's at least a nickname but there's a, there's too much there's too much you know delo that that situation that's not really a nickname that's more of an abbreviation anyway I we were we were talking about something remotely important. I can't remember what it was. Something about development and Mikhail Bridges and Jalen Brown. I remember. I'm sorry. We'll probably just cut all that nonsense out and get back back on track. Okay, and make that the only part of the podcast. Cut everything else out. 
Oh, yes. That's, that was what I, a four-minute section on nicknames. Um, okay, so, so here's the thing. Mikhail Bridges, when like Chris Paul and Devin Booker go off the court, the, we've talked about this before. You expect to see these huge spikes, right? You expect to see these huge spikes in primacy, in in offensive load, and how much how much they're shouldering the offense. And you just don't see that with him. So even though yes, Chris Paul and Devin Booker are there as of right now, when he goes off the court, their offensive load, his offensive load goes from like twenty one or twenty two, which is a little below average, to about twenty seven which is much closer to league average. So I just I just think this again comes back to this idea of what you said about Kawhi earlier, that that is like a one in a million outcome and that we shouldn't necessarily think just because Kawhi Leonard and Paul George had this development as big athletic wings because Nikola Jokic can do this as a big center that we can take that Jalen Brown can, well, actually I think the Jalen Brown example is more realistic, which is my point. I'm arguing my own point already. What's going on? Um, But like the Kawhi thing is one in a million. So what I find is it's actually less realistic for those top seven teams to draft these players and think, Oh, we're just going to put them on this path. And by giving, by making Zach Levine, the point guard, he will then become uh, an MVP level offensive player because he'll have these on ball reps and he'll be that much better as a passer and that much better as a dribbler. And I just think there's only so much you can do with certain players and trying to maximize their strengths. That's the pathway to go down. That's why I was joking only partially earlier about Grant Williams, because I think you can't, I don't think you can take Grant Williams and turn him into uh, Tyrese Halliburton. Just don't think you can do it. But what you can do, and you've started to see him do it this year, it's pretty interesting because he's already a very good defender, is you can make him a much better three-point shooter, a much better corner spot-up three-point shooter, and then you can help him attack closeouts. And as his handle improves and he attacks closeouts, then he can make decisions downstream, and now maybe you get a short roll passer, right? Because you have the processing power to dribble and pass on the move. Those are the things that I think fit together and are really important. And one of the reasons why having diverse reps on really good teams or winning environments next to other good players can actually help so much with your development, because it's very hard for everyone. It's very hard for everyone to turn into Dwayne Wade and LeBron James and, and Nikola Jokic. I don't know if people know that. And I think what you're describing is like a level of frustration that people have with impact metrics. Cause if you go back, like you, you pull up like the top 10, not not even top 10, you just pull up top lists of like the top whatever impact metrics of the day is, right? You're going to see guys like Danny Green pop up. You're going to see guys like Robert Covington pull up. And you're like, well, wait a second. Danny Green and Robert Covington aren't the best players of the last decade. Like what's going on? Why are they here? Well, that's because like they're so portable that their skill set is completely maximized in those specific roles because the impact metric isn't telling you how good a player is. It's telling you how good that player is in that system, in that particular role. And by good, I mean, you're, you're seeing the the outcome of that player in that role, right? And some players can't necessarily be shifted into a different role. Like, that is the role that they're maximized in. Like you said, Grant Hill can't become Tyrese Halliburton. Um, Grant, and, Grant, know, we, Grant Hill could become <laughs> Tyrese Halliburton. Grant Hill could, man, Grant Grant Hill. Williams, though. Like that, dude. Grant Williams, though. Grant Williams can't even become Grant Hill. Like, the Grants aren't even interchangeable at this point. No Grant uh, could become Grant Hill right now. No. Jeremy Grant can't become Grant Hill. There's, there's no shot. There's no Grant 2 on the horizon. But yeah, there there does seem to be like a seal. Like every player seems to have a ceiling. Like at a certain point, you're maximized. When I would you say find a ceiling. Role, I would say a ceiling in a particular direction. That's that's what yeah, I'm th- focusing yes, on. Yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. I agree yeah, with that. I think that I think that's the key part. Um, there was another. How about this for an example? Draymond Green. Mm-hmm. What if you took Draymond Green and he was drafted to a lottery team and just thrown out there and said hey, this is a 15-win team, but for whatever reason, we we saw you at Michigan State, and it's post-Nikola Jokic, okay? So Draymond Green comes along today. We saw you at Michigan State. We realize you can pass a little, and you have ball skills. We want you running the offense. We want you getting pick-and-roll reps, and we want you shooting more. Oh, you're only shooting 28% from three. We'll just shoot more. 
Okay. You're turning the ball over a lot. You're struggling on certain actions because you're not that quick. Well, really focus on that. We want to really work on your decision-making tree and pick and roll. I don't know how much his defense develops in a setting like that. He always had great awareness and sort of a basketball savvy in college. So maybe that comes along organically. Maybe that's one of those things that the environment doesn't matter, right? It's like environment independent. But there just seem to be examples like that out there of players you wouldn't ever want to run down that development track and him going to Golden State. He's talked about this before. The team was pretty good. They had that young talent that was already there. And he's like, the only way I'm going to get on the court is if I figure out how to be an incredible defender. And I just put everything into playing defense and study this and figure this out. And what happens is he sort of starts to trim down. He starts to get playing time. I think there was a David Lee injury that, that triggered that. And it's like the rest is history. But that's that development track cannot happen, I don't think, on a 14-win on a team that says, hey, don't worry about this. And full circle, you come back to Anthony Edwards, and I have no idea, you know, this isn't firsthand information. I'm not criticizing anything happening in Minnesota in particular because I don't know what they're focusing on. But I do see a ton of instances where, okay, now you brought in another all-star. It's Rudy Gobert, and it's a defensive all-star. And what's the first thing that jumps out and breaks as you try to go from a 44-win team to a 54-win team? It's Anthony Edwards' awareness on defense his communication on defense, and sometimes that effort on defense. And if you're only focusing on sort of one development thing, especially with your off-season work and your trainers and all that stuff, do you lose the other connective tissue that actually helps you win championships or makes you a high-level player? You you mentioned um, uh, Danny Green, sort of the Shane Battiers of the world, Chuck Hayes, Draymond, all, all these other guys. Like, Do you lose that? But what's interesting is Anthony Edwards seems like a wholly different kind of player than those other guys you were talking about, right? Like, you can you can take Danny Green and be like, I can pick, like, put you next to LeBron. We're going to maximize you here. Draymond Green, put you on Golden State, focus on defense, focus on passing. That's how it's going to work. I think we both agree that Anthony Edwards isn't being maximized on whatever track he is with the context that the Timberwolves have right now. So my question is, I, you can take it either theoretical or actually look at a team but what team context would be ideal for Anthony Edwards right now? Hmm. I I don't know. I don't know. I I actually don't know if I, I you know can really entertain the premise even about him not being maximized. I just don't know enough about the inner workings of that development path. I'm just speaking more of perception and theory and people from the outside saying like, ideally, what we want to do is we want to draft. Uh, we want to draft Pokashevsky and we want to draft Shea Gilders Alexander and we want to draft all these guys. And each one, we will just have them go and run a ton of stuff. Now, a couple years later, you know, everything kind of runs through Shea. But it's just sort of this idea of maybe it goes back to the rise of heliocentrism and constantly wanting to get players on ball reps and things like that. Well, I mean, they're not even heliocentrism, but always like whatever the newest thing was, like the, the period of time where every 6'8 tweener big was going to be the next Draymond Green and every lanky big man was going to be Bam or Anthony Davis or, or something like that. And you just I, I don't think you can like box it in and, and uh, prescribe something that easily. Right. And it sounds reductive after this whole conversation, but I think ultimately we're coming to the conclusion that we can't solve it all right now. And it is just infinitely more complicated. I'm not sure what we've what we've uh figured out here today do we ever figure anything out no that's a good that's a good point um that's a rarity yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, th it's thinking bad we're not solving basketball ben we are thinking basketball that's true that's true that's a very good point we don't have to really solve anything we just have to kind of bat these ideas around is there we really got we really got sidetracked <laughs> on that topic is there anything else that we uh we want to discuss today before we get out the door Okay, so there's been a lot of conversation during this entire season about how, how offensive numbers are just off the charts, right? And we've talked about it a few times. Like, you you just said the Celtics' offensive rating is 122. It's 122. Yeah, what's wrong with that? It's, it's absurd. Like, that yeah. doesn't even make sense. And, you know, a lot of people bring up the idea that, like, you know, Mike Prada spaced out. The game is so much more spaced out. You see it with the Utah Jazz. You see it with the way the Celtics are able to play without Rob Williams. But... I don't necessarily think 
that all of the offensive improvement is strictly because of offense. So my theory with this, I, I kind of have a developing theory. I'm not, I'm not 100% sold on it, because so I just kind of want to kick it to you. Kick it to you and see what you're going to do with this one. Could it be that offenses are also exploding right now because so many teams are playing spaced out big men that aren't necessarily rim protectors? And by going towards spacing the court... They're actually sacrificing the rim protection chops and making their defenses worse. So it's kind of like this pull from both sides. You get the offensive stretching, but you also lose the classic defensive big that can hang in the paint and make the still the most valuable shot uh, more difficult. Hmm. Okay, so your theory is more offensively slanted lineups in a way, uh, kind of removing more paint defense. That's yes. the theory. That is the theory. Uh, I, I, I think I would go in a different direction. I think I'd go in okay. a different direction because I think at the earlier part of this explosion of offense, teams tried to play more defensively oriented big men and they just got destroyed. And, you know, you might think, which is probably part of it. Well, you can't play these guys on offense because they're less skilled and they're non-shooters. So we need at least four of them out there at any given time having two non-shooters in the big man position that don't have skills they they get in each other's way you can't have two guys running pick and roll easily all the time and stuff like that okay so there's maybe some offensive reason but i think on the defensive end if you don't have the mobility and the agility it gets very tricky against high level teams to cover all the ground and that might have been something that you could deal with in the regular season for a number of years maybe even two years ago, maybe even last year a little bit. But what I'm seeing that I think is driving more of it is just great X's and O's where every team is learning to space really well. And like, if you watch the Celtics, like their spacing is incredible. It's incredible. And yet it's also kind of basic. And it's also something that we take for granted, but you don't have to play five out every possession. You can move guys through the lane. You can keep people in the dunker spot. But when you come down in early offense and transition on your resets and you've got the corner, you've got a guy three steps behind the above the break three in the slot or whatever it is, this just opens up the floor. It makes the distance the defense has to travel incredibly, incredibly difficult. And so I think if you have a big man and he's a great rim protector – you're already nullifying some of that with the X's and O's. That's that's sort of that that would be my take on it. So I guess my pushback with this, and it's just it's just a couple of teams, right? I'm just gonna use a couple of teams, but the Bucks right now, the Bucks right now have the best defense by by a mile. Like they're almost a point and a half better defensively than any other team in the league. Third I see, best I see what's going on here. I see yeah. what's going on. This was a setup to talk about the Bucks defense. That's what this was. That's exactly my whole point this entire episode is I was gonna get to this point. But another team, top three, the third best defense, Cavaliers. Right. And the thing about these two teams is not only do they have a strong rim protector, right? Like if we look just at the centers, Brooke Lopez playing at a defensive player of the year caliber, Jarrett Allen, really tremendous rim protector. But let's pretend that you're facing a team that's able to space you out a lot more. They got these great X's and O's. They're running some uh, dribble handoffs that are dragging up the big man to the paint. What is it that these two teams also have? A second defender that can rotate down and protect the rim at an extraordinarily high level. Like, Giannis's rim protection numbers right now are unsustainable. Like, he's making players miss, like, 20 percentage points more than they would uh, on a usual attempt. And then, of course, Evan Mobley for the Cavaliers, another extremely mobile big man that can slot down and defend the rim. So, to me, that almost feels like, like not a skeleton key, but a map for how teams might start a adjusting is you're going to need to get these guys that a can space the floor but can also rotate down and not just force all of the rim protection duties onto a single big man but also have it spread across multiple guys yeah okay i see what you're saying but i do think that's a, th those examples are skeleton keys you've got you you got basketball unicorns there because Giannis, mobley anthony davis a few years ago these are guys that can play the four and the five very successfully because they're both incredibly talented shot blockers and paint helpers and mobile. They, they can actually cover ground on the court. So traditionally people think of this as like a switching thing in the playoffs, but they can cover ground on the court by rotating and, and traversing the extreme space that I'm describing. They can come from the corner. Heck, even, even Jared Allen, like 
he can there's a play against the Celtics at the end of one of their games at the beginning of the year where Tatum gets that dump dunk where he comes from like the sideline to almost rotate back into the play uh so I, I think I think what you're saying about rim protection is like tautologically true it's like factually true in the sense that if you if you if your five is a really good rim protector and then your four is also a good rim protector that's better in general than him not being a good rim protector and if your three is jason tatum and he gives you some rim protection as well that's better than your three not being a rim protector and if your two is dwayne wade and he can get in the paint and block shots that's better than your two so i i think i agree with you on that front entirely in the sense that like if you can find rim protection at more and more positions that also cover your other bases, that's when you're going to have an elite modern defense. That, that's one of, if not the recipes for it. So I think that is my ultimate take then, is that teams are ultimately sacrificing the finding more rim protectors, rim protectors and for the spacing the court out more end, right? It's the Harrison Barnes at four, the Sabonis at five kinds of lineups that are just maximizing these offenses that are just, you know, relative defenses that are pretty putrid. So I do, like, tautologically, yes, but also it is the fact that teams are biasing towards spacing out rather than rim protecting. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think that's all true. It's, it's the reason why I still think it's like a skeleton key or a unicorn is there are just so few players and I don't know what you do developmentally to change this, but there are so few players who are both skilled rim protectors and big like that or athletic and also offensively skilled. And you need a third thing, which is you need mobility, right? So you need all of those things in the same package to kind of work in today's game. And, and you know, maybe that's the reason why the Bucks have, uh, what do they have, the best defense in the league still right now by a oh, decent yeah. amount? Yeah, by oh, like yeah. a by like a point and a half there are yeah. five points five points better than the league defensively which is not quite as good as the Boston Celtics being almost nine points better than the league offensively but we will t- we'll talk about that another day <laughs> we'll talk about that another day we've uh we've circled the wagons on a number of topics here today if you want to check out more content and support this podcast patreon.com slash thinking basketball We just released our new website. If you're a a stats person, uh, a data nerd, all the kind of things we look up during the show usually come from the leaderboards that we have daily. We've got player stats. We've got team stats. We've got historical stats. They update regularly. Patreon.com slash thinking basketball. Thanks as always for listening all the way through and and bearing with our our nickname uh, bit that we had to had to dive into today and um, hope you're enjoying the season and of course as always that you are having a great day.